Belong, become, believe. You're listening to Grace Church of Northwest Arkansas podcast. The message for September 25th, 2022 is called Resilient Faith. The speaker is Betty Wilton, and it was recorded on Mount Sequoia in Fayetteville, Arkansas. hear me? Are we on? Sweet. Good morning, Grace. How are y'all this morning? Doing okay? Doing okay? Awesome. My name is Betty Wilton, like John said, um, and I'm the operations and outreach lead here at Grace, and I am super honored to get to teach on this passage this morning because it is just really close to my heart. And so over the past three years or so, my husband, Logan, who I hope you'll meet in the next couple weeks, um, we've been living in what seems to be this little rickety ship in an ever-stormy sea. I know it sounds super dramatic, um, but throughout each year, it's felt like we've just never been able to find a steady footing. Um, Things just kept constantly changing and falling apart. Some were small things, but we faced some really big challenges that ended up being life-changing. And having to navigate all of these changes left us feeling really weary and tired. Um, And I'd often think to myself, why can't things just work out for us? I mean, I'm a faithful Christian, you know, what's going on? What's what's happening? Um, And then one one day, About two years ago, we got news that something else had gone awry. It was just something small, but it was a week when things just kept going wrong and it's piling up and it was just the thing that broke the camel's back, right? Um, And I remember looking at Logan and just smiling at him and just saying, it's never easy. And we both just broke down laughing because, A, it was just a very dramatic thing to say in the moment, but it also just felt so true. And so it's never easy became almost like a mantra for marriage. It sounds kind of pessimistic maybe, but the phrase, it was to acknowledge that suffering and pain are tangible parts of our reality. And we're not in control of when or how we're going to face it or when it happens. And so as we kept facing more and more challenges, we came to realize that we had a choice to make. We could choose to trust God and submit to the change, continue to love the world we were present in, even though it was really hard at times, or we could choose to cling to this illusion of control and put up more walls so that we wouldn't have to get hurt again. And I'm not going to try and convince you all that we always chose the former. Um, I'm an Enneagram 8, if that means anything to you all, so it's not really my MO to submit to change and hand somebody else the power. Don't like it at all. Um, and so, honestly, sometimes we would only take the, take the risk to trust God after we were just really, really tired after our hands were just battered and bruised from fighting and holding on to that control so tightly. But in those moments of weary frustration, God would come and gently open our clenched hands and rub a soothing balm over the blisters 
and we would look at the hands of Jesus and see the scars and remember that God isn't foreign to suffering or pain. Instead, God is a fellow sufferer who understands what we're going through. And so in his arms, we finally felt safe to continue loving ourselves and others because we knew we weren't alone in our suffering. We decided that we wanted our, our hearts to stay soft as we continued on the journey. And so each time we would repeat this mantra, it's never easy, we would remind ourselves and each other that no matter what would come our way, we must choose love and connection over bitterness and detachment. And sometimes we'll say it with a smile on our face. Sometimes we'll scream it. And other times we'll say it with tears streaming down our face. But each time we turn to the hands of Jesus and we remember who our creator is and who we were created to be. And Peter reminds us through our passage this morning that it's never easy, but it's so worth it. So join me as we look at 1 Peter 4 this morning. I'm just going to read it real quick. So since Christ suffered in the flesh, you also arm yourselves with the same attitude. Because the one who has suffered in the flesh has finished with sin, and that he spends the rest of his time on earth concerned about the will of God and not human desires. For the time that has passed was sufficient for you to do what the non-Christians desire. You lived then in debauchery, evil desires, drunkenness, carousing, drinking bouts, bouts and wanton idolatries. So they are astonished when you don't rush with them into the same flood of wickedness and they vilify you. They will face a reckoning before Jesus who stands ready to judge the living and the dead. Now it was for this very purpose that the gospel was preached to those who are now dead, so that though they were judged in the flesh by human standards, they may live spiritually by God's standards. For the culmination of all things is near. So be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayer, for the sake of prayer. Above all, keep your love for one another fervent, because love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without complaining. Just as each one has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of the varied grace of God. Whoever speaks, let it be with God's word. Whoever serves, do it with the strength that God supplies, so that in everything God will be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Dear friends, do not be astonished that a trial by fire is occurring among you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in the degree that you have shared in the sufferings of Christ, so that when his glory is revealed, you may also rejoice and be glad. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory, who is the spirit of God, rests on you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or thief or criminal or as a troublemaker. But if you suffer for as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but glorify God that you bear such a name. For it is time for judgment to begin, starting with the house of God. And if it starts with us, what will then be the fate of those who were disobedient to the gospel of God? And if the righteous are barely saved, what will become of the ungodly and sinners? So then let those who suffer according to the will of God entrust their souls to the faithful creator as they do good. 
So this letter that Peter's written to the early Christians living in Asia Minor is an exhortation and encouragement to to keep choosing love and connection, even when they face suffering. It's a call to live their lives outwards for the sake of others, instead of letting an unbridled pursuit of pleasure and happiness lead them to selfish detachment at the expense of others. Peter wants to help believers discern what it looks like to be faithful in the face of suffering, to learn how to be resiliently faithful in the face of cultural coercion while living a life rooted in the spirit. So Peter wrote this letter likely in his mid-60s. And so he's speaking out of, it, out of his own experience of wrestling in this tension. And so we get to see how much Peter has learned about what it means to live faithfully while enduring suffering. You see, one of the last times we learned about Peter or heard from Peter was in the Gospels. And we see him on the night of the crucifixion denying Jesus three times. That night, Peter was confronted with both Jesus' suffering and the threat of his own suffering. And he chose to detach himself from both by running away. But then a little while later, we see how Jesus appears to this shame-ridden disciple to restore their relationship. And it is in this encounter between the scarred and resurrected Christ and Peter where Peter met God in the midst of his own suffering. And it was there that he was drawn back into connection with God and those around him. So it's no surprise that right off the bat, Peter calls his readers to remember that our God is a God who suffers. God is not detached from, unaware of, or careless about suffering. Through Jesus, we see the heart of God bend down to a cruel world and choose to love it even when it meant being put to death. And through Jesus, we see that new life is given to all. The Taiwanese theologian C.S. Song says that the resurrection created a new space for us in this world, a world of toil, labor, pain, and anguish, a space where we could experience victory in the midst of the struggle of being human. So with this in mind, Peter makes a distinction between what it means to live for human desires versus living for the will of God. When we look at the list of behaviors that characterize human desires in verse three, we see a common thread of self-indulgence and pleasure. These ultimately lead to detachment from self, others, and God. Now, verses like this one have often been used as a weapon to bring shame to those who have participated in these in the past. But Peter's not listing these behaviors as a way to shame the believers for things they've done in the past. Rather, Peter is saying that this desire to detach from the world and fill our lives with pleasure that removes us from the world isn't part of the will of God. He's saying that these behaviors are a product of a world that seeks to ignore pain and suffering and focus on how good everything is or to make it seem like it's good. They're an unbridled pursuit of pleasure. And while our cultural context, believe it or not, is a little different than the early church in Asia Minor, um, we also face this same struggle in our society today. 
A popular narrative in our culture is this elevation of hyper-individuality. Our society is all about the individual instead of and often at the expense of the collective. In their book, Faith for Exiles, David Kinnaman and Mark Matlock refer to our cultural moment as digital Babylon. They explain that here in digital Babylon, our lives are filled with an overwhelming amount of tools that create a me-sized experience all day, every day. Tools like technology, social media, porn, streaming, fast fashion, and so many more. They're often disguised as this pursuit of happiness. And the undisciplined use of these tools can create pervasive, self-centered, and self-indulgent mindsets in all of us. But when we follow this narrative, we can often find ourselves disconnected, lonely, and anxious. The U.S. Surgeon General, Dr. Vivek Murthy, did a listening tour to to determine what was ailing Americans. And he found loneliness to actually be a public health crisis because this experience of disconnection actually affects our ability to weather life's most difficult storms. Studies show that somewhere around 20% of adults in the U.S., admit to struggling with loneliness. To put into perspective, he says that's far more than the number of adults who have diabetes or who smoke in the US. And that that's just the number of people who admit to struggling with loneliness. There are likely many more dealing with loneliness but don't feel comfortable admitting it. And this is really important because loneliness is more than just a bad feeling from time to time. When we feel lonely, often it has an impact on our health and how we show up in the world. And so the outcome of our lives here in digital Babylon is ironically disconnection and loneliness. And when we feel disconnected from others, we can start to believe that our lives are just only meant to be about pursuing pleasure and what makes us happy. We don't feel like our actions We feel like it doesn't matter how our actions impact those around us because it's all about me. And I think that this narrative creeps into our theology in some really insidious ways, more than I'm going to be able to talk about today. But sometimes we have this sense of entitlement to a prosperous life as Christians. We start to use scripture like, if God is for me, who can be against me? And God won't give me more than I can handle. We use them almost as if we should never suffer as Christians. And when we do that, we run the risk of making God into something like a genie who just grants us wishes and just wants nothing more than our happiness. Well, in this passage this morning, Peter is saying, that's not it. Throughout this passage, he is reminding us that when we enter into the new life of Christ, our lives are no longer about seeking out our own pleasure and gain, regardless of how it impacts those around us. In Christ, we find our place in the community of creation. We find belonging in an interconnected ecosystem where our actions matter. And by entering into this life with Christ, we also enter his suffering. 
I know, less fun, but in this new life, (laughs) in our journey as believers, we're now responsible to this community of creation that we belong to, and ultimately to Christ, our creator. And so living out this countercultural kingdom means that we deflect attention to Jesus. We learn to put ourselves aside for the sake of the whole. And so now the question is, how do we actually face suffering then? And what's the antidote for this life in digital Babylon? Well, Peter starts out by saying, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. We begin with prayer because in prayer, we acknowledge our utter dependence on God. We say, I don't have the answers. I really don't know what the heck is going on, but I just need to be with you, God, and I need your help. When we take time to pray, we're able to tune our hearts to the Spirit. It's a time to let yourself be drawn away from the constant noise and chaos of the world around us. It's a time to let yourself be grounded, to be reminded of who you are and of who God is. And when we take time in prayer, we're then better able to discern how God is moving around in the world around us. So then Peter gives us the ultimate antidote for living in digital Babylon. He says, above all, keep your love for one another fervent because love covers a multitude of sins. Now, it's important for us to define the type of love that Peter is talking about here because society's definition can often be twisted and self-serving. So we need to slow down and make sure we're attuned to God's definition of love. This fervent love Peter is talking about is a love with great intensity, to love in a way that stretches us to our limit. It's the love that Christ embodied. And so with him as our model, we see that it's a love that's willing to suffer for others. Fervent love isn't self-centered, self-contained, or self-preserving. It goes outside of itself and enters into the lives of the people around us. And so loving like this, loving wholeheartedly, inevitably leads to suffering because wholeheartedly loving others means you suffer with them and for them. It's a, it's a love at any cost and all cost. C.S. Song explains how we understand this type of love by looking at Jesus. They say, Jesus on the cross is God loving the world and suffering for it. The world that brought Jesus to the cross is a cruel world, and yet God loves us all the way to the cross. So then does the cross not tell us that God loves us in spite of everything? Peter calls us to this type of love because this love he's calling to it, calling us to is a love that carries high risk, a risk of vulnerability and pain. He calls us to this type of love because it requires us to stay close to the world and suffer for it and suffer with it. This closeness is an essential spiritual dynamic because it acts as a touchstone to our reality and to the people around us. 
In loving a cruel world fervently, there's a risk of suffering. But it was only when God had taken the risk of fervent love, giving his own son to us, that we were able to reunite with God. This risky love is what brings God and human beings together. This suffering builds loving connections and relationships between people. And as a result of these loving relationships, we have the padding in life that allows us to sustain ourselves and our communities through all the ups and downs that inevitably come our way. And so Peter continues and explains what fervent love in action looks like. First he says, show hospitality without complaining. I love that Peter includes that last bit um, because it stands in such contrast to what our cultural tendency is. We often only want to show hospitality when it's convenient to us or for just the people that we like or who are really similar to us, think like us, look like us. But Dan White Jr. points out why this attitude is so common in our culture. He says, in a consumer-oriented time, it becomes utterly normal for people to demand the benefits of community without the inconvenience of commitment. We often want to receive love, but forget that true transformative love requires mutuality and reciprocity. It means that we have to be aware of the needs of others and be willing to meet them where they're at. But in our society, we're, we're encouraged to consume, to take and take and take, but not to give, and especially not to give when it feels inconvenient. And the irony of our incessant consumption of taking and taking is that though we have all this stuff, all of these um, things, we never feel satisfied. We don't feel more fulfilled or connected. Rather, we often feel more isolated. And even though we may be able to disguise our pain for a little bit, whether that's through more consumption of goods or if it's substance use, whatever that may be, that pain comes back to us because we haven't healed it. We've just disguised it. And so offering hospitality is like giving a gift. If the giver's resentful, it doesn't really feel like a good gift. I don't know if y'all have ever had that experience, but it's not very fun to get a gift that you can tell the person who's giving it doesn't really want to give. Um, and so we're called to show hospitality, like we're called to show love, that we're called to love at all cost. Because to offer a space where people, for people to feel known, where they can feel nourished and rest, is to say to them, I see you and you are worthy of care and rest. It's to take the risk of connecting with another, with one another, even though that may mean bearing with one another in suffering. A, do a quote from Dr. Vivek Murthy sums up the power of showing hospitality as it relates to loneliness. He says, to be loved is not enough. You have to be both loved and to be known. And when we're both known and loved, we can be healed and we can truly flourish. Showing and offering hospitality can look like sitting with someone, listening with compassion, and just seeing them for who they are. 
It can be cooking a meal, going for a walk, or watching a movie together. Maybe it's inviting someone new to lunch or taking time to ask some how taking time to ask somebody how they truly are. And Peter understands that we all have different ways of showing love and offering hospitality. And he reminds us that we all have gifts given to us by God to use for the building up of our communities. And what's interesting here is that in the same breath, Peter calls us again to deflect the attention to God. He knows how invasive this human desire for glory and control is. So when we see our service towards our communities as an act of stewardship, it orients our hearts and our minds to recognize that we can't do anything apart from God. God is the one who deserves the glory. Why? Well, because we know that the God we serve is worthy. We know that he has a plan to renew our lives and the world around us, not just because we're offered eternal life, that is wonderful and good, but also because he is the one who gives life now in the present, in a world that wants nothing more than to take all it can. He is the one that offers us rest, who us who are weary from living these detached, broken, and anxiety-ridden lives. God is the one who holds us when we suffer, the one who gives us strength, and the one who offers a new way to live in this chaotic world, and the one who's faithful to his promises. Amen? Amen. So in this final section of our passage, Peter tells us what to do when we face suffering and how we can live resiliently faithful instead of giving in to this cultural coercion to detach and seek our pleasure instead. So let me call us back real quick to my little story at the beginning. It's never easy. And while this mantra only arrived about two years ago, it's a tension and a weight that I felt really my whole life. I've always thought that because I'm a Christian and I'm living faithfully, life should go my way. That it should always be easy, or at least usually be easy. And now I won't ask for a show of hands, but I don't think I'm alone in this. I mean, I don't think any of us came out thinking right off the bat, it's never easy. This expectation for life to go smoothly is taught in so many parts of our society. And there, I mean, there's a reason that the self-help industry in our country is so large. We so desperately just want to follow three quick, easy steps to a fulfilling life. We want simple answers to life's big questions and simple fixes to life's big pains. Kate Bowler is an author and professor who looks into how the self-help prosperity gospel affects our experiences of suffering. Her work talks about how subscribing to and following this worldview and theology, we end up being left so unequipped to face the real world. Instead of being taught how to grow resiliency in our faith as we experience pain, We're taught to ignore and avoid its reality. But let's just be honest for a minute. Life can be really hard. I mean, we go through really painful things, whether that's severe or chronic illness, divorce, trauma, miscarriages, death of loved ones, you name it. There are hard things that we go through. 
And when these un- unbelievably hard things happen to us, it's so easy to get lost in the search for answers, asking, why me? Why, why now? Why, God, why? We end up searching for answers because we haven't been taught how to face the reality of suffering and pain. We weren't given the tools to be resilient. Instead, our culture, and let's be honest, a lot of our churches only allow us to talk about suffering with a can-do spirit that just wants to overcome. You know, slap a smile on you, you'll get over it, you know. Where everything can just always be overcome. But Kate Bowler explains that talking about suffering in this way, with this can-do spirit of always being able to overcome, leads to a tremendous amount of shame for people who can't simply try harder or pray more or magically get better. It leads us to isolate ourselves from others because we don't feel safe to be honest about the things that we're going through. We fear that we won't be loved or that people won't understand or that we'll be rejected ultimately. And a lot of times we also end up isolating ourselves from God because we haven't been given the tools to lament, to talk honestly with God. And so then the only solution that we can think of is to numb, to escape and hide. In February this year, Logan and I were living in Chilliwack, British Columbia, and we had just come out of an ice storm and recovered from COVID, and we were preparing my immigration documents for my permanent residency, and we were finally kind of in the groove with our ministry jobs. And then one Wednesday, I got a text from my mom saying that my dad was taken to the emergency room, and they were in need of a lot of prayer. And we had only been in been back in BC for about a month after seeing my family at Christmas. And so it felt really out of the blue because my dad was in perfect health when we left and had been for what felt like my whole life. And so I I felt so confused and I just had to wait each day for a small update and pray that God would heal him. And then one week later, I got the worst text I've ever received. Dad has been diagnosed with high-grade AML, a.k.a. advanced leukemia, and has cirrhosis of his liver, so there's no viable treatment options. My entire world collapsed. I couldn't speak. I, I couldn't even breathe. The first thing I did was run out of my office to my car, and all I could think was, I have got to get away. I got to go. I got to go. And then as I'm I'm running, I think, why is this happening? Why now? Why him? Why us? I got to get away from here. And when I ran to my car, one of the women I worked with, her name is Kelly, she followed me out because she knew something was wrong. And she knocked on my window. And when I opened the car door, she just wrapped her arms around me and held me so tightly. One of those mama bear hugs. And I just began uncontrollably weeping. And then she cried with me. And in that embrace, I could feel God crying with us. I knew that I wasn't alone. I knew I was loved. And I wasn't thinking 
I need to get away. Why is this happening anymore? The only thing I was thinking was, I need you to keep holding me. You see, in that moment, Kelly could have chosen to run from suffering, but she chose to embrace my suffering, just as Christ did. She took the risk to enter into my suffering and be vulnerable with me, to cry with me. My friends, this is fervent love in action. This is what it means to love someone to the point of suffering. This is what it means to share in the sufferings of Christ. To hold someone in their anguish and to offer your presence. It's actions of love like this that remind us that God is with us in the midst of suffering. And it's only when we allow ourselves to receive the fervent love of God and others that we can then offer it to ourselves and to others in return. When I got that text, all I wanted to do was escape. I didn't want to pray. I didn't want to be with the people who loved me. I just wanted to run. I wanted to drive until my car ran out of gas and I was stuck on the side of the road and then I could probably keep running. But Kelly reminded me, not through words, but in her actions, that when we suffer, the whole body suffers with us. We are not alone. We are held in the scarred hands of Christ. And so after Kelly let go, I went home and I wept with God and then with my family. And I took the risk to keep connecting with my family, even though suffering was all around us. And it was really painful. We're now about seven months into my dad's battle with leukemia, a battle that daily takes every ounce of energy he has. But each day, God gives us the strength to keep loving and connecting. You see, over this past seven months, God has shown up in so many ways, new ways, old ways, through people, through places. And each day we learn more about who God is and who he's called us to be. And in doing so, in choosing to suffer together, God is glorified through our family and in our community because God's the only reason that we can still wake up every morning and keep going. Peter teaches us that to love and follow Christ means we must be willing to follow the example of our God who has chosen to suffer in loving solidarity with his creation for the sake of holistic renewal. In these inevitable moments where it feels like our world is falling apart. Peter calls us not only to think of Christ's suffering, but to think of the victory of Christ. Because when we put it into the perspective of eternal life, we're given the fuel to survive. We remember that it's not the end of the story. We're promised in Revelation 21, the culmination of all things that Peter's talking about, that God will wipe every tear from our eyes that there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain because the old order of things will be passed away. There will be a time when we won't have to endure, endure this cruel world. 
And then Peter ends the section with an encouragement to all believers, saying, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Entrusting our souls to a faithful creator is to live with resilient faith, to live with fervent love in our hearts, a risky, suffering love that enables us to maintain our sanity in this maddening world, to draw close to the one who gives us energy and restores our balance and spirit in this world of change and insecurity, to reach out for life when we're confronted with death, and to live grounded in the power of God's love, a love that makes us strong when we're weak, that gives us courage when we're afraid, and that supports us when we falter. I'll invite the worship team to come on back up. So as we enter into this time of communion and of reflection, I want us to remember that at this table, we don't have to pretend that we're okay. We can release the charade. We don't have to make excuses or downplay our our hearts and our aches. At the table, Jesus invites us to rest in the midst of the chaos and suffering. He says, come, sit, be nourished, be with me. So as we take and eat in remembrance of the fervent love of Christ, take a moment to pray and reflect. If you're in the midst of suffering right now, may you find rest in the presence of God knowing that you are held, you are seen and loved just as you are. And if you're in a season where the waters are calm, take some time to ask God who you can come alongside and offer hospitality and fervent love to. Let the Spirit guide you and give you strength. I'm going to close with a prayer. God, thank you for being a God, not just of solidarity, but of deep and raw emotion. A God who didn't endure violence in silence, but who spoke and cried. Help us to remember that our memory of you becomes more whole when we remember you alongside all the injustices with which you suffered in solidarity. Today, let us grieve the path of the cross, this pandemic, violence to the bodies of people of color, the alienation of the marginalized, the surge of hate in our country. Let us weep and rest, knowing that solidarity is costly. And let us meet you a God who knows the weight of violent oppression and truly believe that you are with us, that your cause is our cause, a cause that is no less than justice and liberation in life and death. Amen. Thank you for listening to Grace Church of Northwest Arkansas podcast. 
You can find more about us online at gracechurchmwa.org. Grace and peace.